morning, everyone. <laughs> Good morning. Uh, today is May 16th, and uh, uh, this Dharma talk is going to be um, about uh, the middle way. And we'll just plunge right in. So, um, actually, that's one of the names for Buddhism, is the middle way. And uh, this is traditionally considered to be um, the first teaching of the Buddha after his great enlightenment when he encountered the five ascetics. I think most of us know the story. <clears throat> Never know, really, um, how much uh, just basic Buddhist uh, traditional history and teaching people know it's possible to practice Zen and really not... <clears throat> know much, um, maybe even not need to know too much, um, but it is, it can be extremely helpful to understand uh, some of the teachings uh, of the Buddha and of the, uh, the many great masters that followed him. Uh, so in this first teaching to the five ascetics, just to review, uh, the Buddha had spent something like six years practicing severe asceticism and uh, then finally at the point of death realized that he was at a dead end. <clears throat> Literally, he would be dead if he continued. And he found what uh, he called the middle path between uh, severe restriction, asceticism, and indulgence, sensual indulgence. <clears throat> uh, this is... Uh, actually uh, from the sutra, the turning of the wheel of the Dharma, uh, Dhamma Chaka Padavatana, <clears throat> I'm sure I mangled that, uh, where the Buddha laid this out in this first teaching, traditionally. He said, monks, these two extremes, of course, indulgence and, uh, and asceticism, ought not to be practiced by one who has gone forth from the household life, that is, by a monk. There is an addiction to indulgence of sense pleasures, which is low, coarse, the way of ordinary people, unworthy and unprofitable. And there is an addiction to self-mortification, which is painful, unworthy, and unprofitable. Avoid both these extremes. Avoiding both these extremes the perfect one has realized the middle path. <clears throat> it gives vision, gives knowledge, and leads to calm, to insight, to enlightenment, and to nirvana. And what is that middle path realized by the Tathagata? It is the noble eightfold path and nothing else, namely right understanding, right thought, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. <clears throat> Roshi, uh, usually in, in uh, introductory workshops, runs through, very quickly runs through the Eightfold Path, <clears throat> and uh, usually says that really uh, right concentration, or uh, dhyana, which is the Sanskrit word, which is the equivalent to Zen or Chan in Chinese, um, basically can take us the whole way. That it can all be summed up in 
right concentration. But um, all these things reinforce each other. <clears throat> you could say that uh, it could all be summed up in right view. They're, uh, they're often divided into uh, three categories, uh, Shila, Samadhi, and Prajna, or morality, uh, mental discipline, and wisdom. They all <clears throat> reinforce each other. Basically, <clears throat> they lead to calm, to insight, and finally to enlightenment and, and awakening. This, this uh, definition of the middle path is typically understood as, at least that's, this is the way I, un I always understood it, as kind of, you know, a splitting the difference, right? You've got uh, an ascetic on one end and you've got a libertine on the other and somewhere in the middle is where you want to land. Um, but there's a, a deeper way of understanding it, which is you're stepping out of that dichotomy. You're, you're, you're moving off of that plane and coming at it from a, from a we could say higher, <laughs> then we got higher and lower, but a, a different uh, understanding. And this... Uh, This teaching of a middle way uh, later in Buddhism gets expanded into uh, all the various uh, spectrums, dichotomies. Uh, for instance, there's a lot in the sutras, later sutras, about uh, neither existence nor annihilation. Uh, this refers to a lot of the philosophical views that were uh, around in India at the time, and uh, the Buddha preached the middle way, uh, that if we held on to existence, we didn't see the truth, and if we believed that there is really nothing, that also didn't cover it, didn't get it. Uh, in the Lankavatara Sutra, which was reportedly Bodhidharma's favorite sutra, and so it has a lot to do with the origins of Zen, uh, you have this line, things are not what they seem, nor are they otherwise. There's not some separate reality. This world of things that we live in is the world of the absolute. There's not, a, there's not something standing outside that we need to get to. <clears throat> when you, when you uh, move through history and you get to uh, Chan Buddhism, for the beginnings of Buddhism in China, um, the, the list of opposites opposing uh, sides of reality uh, really flowers. And uh, I want to read a little something from a book called The Golden Age of Zen by John C.H. Wu. It uh, has a lot to do with It actually is about nothing else than the, uh, the development of Zen in China in the early, these early years. And this is from a chapter 
about Huineng, Huineng, the sixth patriarch of Zen. And here's what uh, John Wu says. We can easily discern the elements of Confucian ethics in the system of Huineng. On the other hand, he is so dialectically minded that one cannot help noting the profound affinity between him and Lao Tzu. Of course, Lao Tzu is the uh, great figure in, uh, in Taoism. And as Roshi's often pointed out, uh, Zen is really a uh, came, a rose, out of a meeting between Buddhism as it came from India, the Mahayana, and between Taoism and Confucianism, the two main streams that existed already in China. <clears throat> says the second chapter of the Tao Te Ching gives us the classic statement of Taoistic dialectics. When all the world recognizes beauty as beautiful, there emerges ugliness. When all the world recognizes good as good, there emerges evil. Likewise, the hidden and the manifest give birth to each other. Difficult and easy complement each other. Long and short set measure to each other. High and low have reference to each other. Tones and voice harmonize with each other. Back and front follow each other. All these pairs of opposites belong to the realm of relativity, and the sage, according to Lao Tzu, does not dwell on them, but rises above them. <clears throat> then he goes on. Similarly, Wei Neng, in his last instructions to his disciples, enumerated no less than 36 pairs of opposites, such as light and darkness, yin and yang, form and the formless, on and on and on and on, the great and the small, perversion and rectitude, klesa and bodhi, Klesa means vexation or defilement, and Bodhi, of course, is enlightenment. <clears throat> Kindness and cruelty, permanent and impermanent, and on and on and on. And then Huineng says, if you know the proper way of using these pairs of opposites, you will be able to go freely in and out through the scriptural dharmas, that is, through the sutras, steering clear of the two extremes by letting the self-nature stir and function spontaneously. In conversation with others, externally be detached from phenomena in the midst of phenomena, that is, from things in the midst of things, <clears throat> and internally be detached from the void in the midst of the void. Don't get stuck on form or emptiness. If you are entirely attached to the phenomenal, you would fall into perverted views. On the other hand, if you are entirely attached to the void, you would only sink deeper into your ignorance. And then this is interesting. If someone asks you about the meaning of existence, answer him in terms of non-existence. If he asks about the worldly, speak of the saintly. If he asks of the saintly, speak of the worldly. In this way, the interdependence and mutual involvement of the two extremes will bring light to the significance of the mean, or we could say the middle way. Suppose someone asks you, what is darkness? Answer him thus, light is the primary cause of darkness and darkness is the secondary cause of light. It is the disappearance of light that causes darkness. Light and darkness exhibit each other and their interdependence points inevitably to the significance of the mean. 
never have just one. Never just one side. And yet, in our efforts, we're continually falling into the good and the bad. There's another Taoist sage, Xuanza, who said, good and bad is the disease of the mind. I want to read uh, <clears throat> a little passage from Anthony DeMello. Forgive me, please. <laughs> I don't seem to be able to give a talk without trotting him out. <clears throat> so there's a little section that says, neither is renunciation the solution. He says this, <clears throat> anytime you're practicing renunciation, you're deluded. How about that? You're deluded. What are you renouncing? Anytime you renounce something, you are forever tied to the thing you renounce. There's a guru in India who says, every time a prostitute comes to me, she's talking about nothing but God. She says, I'm sick of this life that I'm living. I want God. But every time a priest comes to me, he's talking about nothing but sex. Very well. When you renounce something, you're stuck to it forever. When you fight something, you're tied to it forever. As long as you're fighting it, you're giving it power. You gave it as much power, you give it as much power as you're using to fight it. So you must receive your demons, because when you fight them, you empower them. Has nobody ever told you this? When you renounce something, you're tied to it. The only way to get out of this is to see through it. Don't renounce it, see through it. Understand its true value and you won't need to renounce it. It will just drop from your hands. But of course, if you don't see that, if you're hypnotized into thinking that you won't be happy without this, that, or the other thing, you're stuck. What we need to do for you is not what so-called spirituality attempts to do, mainly, namely to get you to make sacrifices, to renounce things. That's useless. You're still asleep. What we need to do is to help you understand, understand, understand. If you understood, you'd simply drop the desire for it. This is another way of saying, if you woke up, you'd simply drop the desire. I think this is really what the middle way is about. Just stepping out of that battle. So much of Zazen is... <clears throat> learning to let go of that tension we feel between where we are and where we want to be. Because if you want to be where you aren't, you're deluded. I've got a couple uh, passages that I, longer passages that I want to read from today, and hopefully I'll get through them, um, that really illuminate this point. And the first is a piece uh, from Ajahn Chah. And the title of it is The Middle Way Within. Uh, looking at the footnotes, this was a talk <clears throat> given in the Northeastern dialect, it's of uh, Thai, Thailand, to an assembly of monks and lay people in 1970. Ajahn Chah was a uh, master in the Thai forest tradition, 
Um, <clears throat> I think he died in the 1970s. Uh, I've uh, dipped into him before, I think actually in my last Dharma talk. So I won't say much more about, about him. We'll let him speak for himself. <clears throat> so this is the middle way within. It says, the teaching of Buddhism is about giving up evil and practicing good. Then when evil is given up and goodness established, we must let go of both good and evil. We've already heard enough about wholesome and unwholesome conditions to understand something about them. So I would like to talk about the middle way, that is the path to transcend both of those things. All the Dharma talks and teachings of the Buddha have one aim, to show the way out of suffering to those who have not yet escaped. The teachings are for the purpose of giving us the right understanding. If we don't understand rightly, we can't arrive at peace. <clears throat> when all the Buddhas became enlightened and gave their first teachings, they de declared these two extremes, indulgence in pleasure and indulgence in pain. These two ways are the ways of infatuation. They are the ways between which those who indulge and sense pleasures much, must fluctuate, never arriving at peace. They are the paths which spin around in samsara. It is in our normal life, birth and death, pain and suffering. <clears throat> the enlightened one observed that all beings are stuck in these two extremes, never seeing the middle way of Dharma. So he pointed them out in order to show the penalty involved in both. Because we are still stuck, because we are still wanting, we live repeatedly under their sway. The Buddha declared that these two ways are the ways of intoxication. They're not the ways of a meditator, not the ways to peace. These ways are indulgence in pleasure and indulgence in pain, or to put it simply, the way of slackness and the way of tension. <clears throat> of course, the <clears throat> way of slackness and the way of tension is really a, a basic koan we work with every time we do zazen really need to begin by relaxing the body. Can't really go too deep when we're carrying tension. And yet it's so easy when we <clears throat> aim for relaxation to then fall into slackness, have the body slump, and that won't do either. It's really when we get beyond both of these that our zazen can really <clears throat> blossom and be fruitful. He says, if you investigate within moment by moment, that is, if you're doing zazen, if you're observing, <clears throat> not, not thinking, if you investigate within moment by moment, you will see that the tense way is anger, the way of sorrow. Going this way, there is only difficulty and distress. Indulgence and pleasure if, you tra if you've transcended this, it means you've transcended happiness. These ways, both happiness and unhappiness, are not peaceful states. The Buddha taught to let go of both of them. This is right practice. This is the middle way. <clears throat> He'll say more in a moment about what he means by happiness. Uh, if anyone is confused, why wouldn't we want to be happy? 
These words, the middle way, do not refer to our body and speech, they refer to the mind. When a mental impression which we don't like arises, it affects the mind and there is confusion. When the mind is confused, when it's shaken up, this is not the right way. When a mental impression arises which we like, the mind goes to indulgence and pleasure. That's not the way either. We people don't want suffering. We want happiness. But in fact, happiness is just a refined form of suffering. <clears throat> you could say happiness and suffering are on the same continuum. He says suffering is the coarse form. You can compare them to a snake. The head of the snake is unhappiness. The tail of the snake is happiness. The head of the snake is really dangerous. It has the poisonous fangs. If you touch it, the snake will bite straight away. But never mind the head. Even if you go and hold on to the tail, it will turn around and bite you just the same because both the head and the tail belong to the one snake. In the same way, both happiness and unhappiness or pleasure and sadness arise from the same parent, wanting. The Buddhist term is tanha, thirsting. So when you're happy, the mind isn't peaceful. It really isn't. For instance, when we get the things we like, such as wealth, prestige, praise, or happiness, we become pleased as a result. But the mind still harbors some uneasiness because we're afraid of losing it. That very fear isn't a peaceful state. Later on, we may actually lose that thing, and then we really suffer. <clears throat> this is obvious and clear to anyone who watches themselves. <clears throat> and it's a basic truth of Buddhism. Nothing is permanent. Things keep shifting. We want things to be a certain way. Inevitably, we're going to be disturbed. We're not going to be able to become completely still. Not going to be able to let the mind settle to let the mind clear, and then to be able to see. He goes on and says, if you aren't aware, even if you're happy, suffering is imminent. It's just the same as grabbing the snake's tail. If you don't let it go, it will bite. So whether it's the snake's tail or its head, that is wholesome or unwholesome conditions, they're all just characteristics of the wheel of existence, of endless change. <clears throat> course is one of the three characteristics of existence, impermanence. He says, the Buddha established morality, concentration, and wisdom as the path to peace, the way to enlightenment. But in truth, these things are not the essence of Buddhism, they're merely the path. The Buddha called them Magga, M-A-G-G-A, not to be confused with M-A-G-A. <laughs> Maga, which means path. The essence of Buddhism is peace, and that peace arises from truly knowing the nature of things. If we investigate closely, we can see that peace is neither happiness nor unhappiness. Neither of these is the truth. The human mind, the mind which the Buddha exhorted us to know and investigate, 
is something we can only know by its activity. The true original mind has nothing to measure it by. There's nothing you can know it by. In its natural state, it is unshaken and unmoving. When happiness arises, all that happiness, all that happens is that this mind is getting lost in a mental impression. There is movement. When the mind moves like this, clinging and attachment to those things come into being. The Buddha has already laid down the path of practice in its entirety, but we have not yet practiced, or if we have, we've practiced only in speech. Our minds and our speech are not yet in harmony. We just indulge in empty talk. But the basis of Buddhism is not something that can be talked about or guessed at. The real basis of Buddhism is full knowledge of the truth of reality. If one knows this truth, then no teaching is necessary. If one doesn't know, then even if he listens to the teaching, he doesn't really hear. That's why the Buddha said, the enlightened one only points the way. He can't do the practice for you because the truth is something you cannot put into words or give away. <clears throat> the beginning of every workshop Roshi <clears throat> says what a dilemma it is for someone to present the Dharma in a workshop or in any other way because words can't encompass the truth. <clears throat> it's a basic slogan of Zen. Teaching beyond words and letters. Directly pointing something we have to know for ourselves, and we can't know it in the conventional way. You knows does not speak, you speaks does not know. <clears throat> I'll continue speaking here. All the teachings are merely similes and comparisons, means to help the mind see the truth. If we haven't seen the truth, we must suffer. For example, we co commonly say the sankharas when referring to the body. Sankharas is a uh, Pali or Sanskrit word, because it's a Pali word here, that means formations, anything which has been put together, all conditioned things. Um, in Thai Buddhism, uh, I read, it's often used to refer to the human body, which of course is put together. It is a conditioned thing. <clears throat> says anybody can say it, but in fact we have problems simply because we don't know the truth of these sankharas and thus cling to them. Because we don't know the truth of the body, we suffer. Here's an example. Suppose one morning you're walking to work and a man yells abuse and insults you from across the street. As soon as you hear this abuse, your mind changes from its usual state. You don't feel so good. You feel angry and hurt. That man walks around abusing you night and day. Whenever you hear the abuse, you get angry, and even when you return home, you're still angry because you feel vindictive. You want to get even. A few days later, another man comes to your house and calls out, Hey, that man who abused you the other day, he's mad. He's crazy. Has been for years. He abuses everybody like that. Nobody takes any notice of anything he says. As soon as you hear this, you are suddenly relieved. That anger and hurt that you've pent up within you all these days melts away completely. Why? 
because you know the truth of the matter now. Before you didn't know. You thought that man was normal, so you were angry at him. Understanding like that caused you to suffer. As soon as you find out the truth, everything changes. Oh, he's mad. That explains everything. When you understand this, you feel fine because you know for yourself. Having known, then you can let go. If you don't know the truth, you cling right there. When you thought that the man who abused you was normal, you could have killed him. But when you find out the truth, that he's mad, you feel much better. This is knowledge of the truth. <clears throat> Someone who sees the Dharma has a similar experience. When attachment, aversion, and delusion disappear, they disappear in the same way. As long as we don't know these things, we think, what can I do? I have so much greed and aversion. This is not clear knowledge. It's just the same as when we thought the madman was sane. When we finally see that he was mad all along, we're relieved of worry. No one could show you this. Only when the mind sees for itself can he uproot and relinquish attachments. <clears throat> can he not grasp the snake? We spend so much time <clears throat> criticizing ourselves. Shouldn't be this way. We're, we're deluded about our delusion. This is just <clears throat> normal cause and effect. Because we grasp at things, because we have aversion to things we don't like, the mind is deluded. The only way out is to see. And the only way to see is to become still. <clears throat> it's not a question of going on a campaign of improvement. There's a place for that. If you see a habit that's causing harm to you or other people, you need to work with it. But the answer is always going to be from seeing, from a change. A change that happens without our direction, that arises out of our zazen, which can be on the mat or it can be in our lives. It arises out of our relinquishing the struggle between good and bad, between this and that. <clears throat> we could say it arises out of our finding the middle way. <clears throat> it's the same with this body that we call Sankaras. Although the Buddha has already explained that it's not substantial or a real being as such, we still don't agree. We stubbornly cling to it. If the body could talk, it would be telling us all day long, you're not my owner, you know. Actually, it's telling us all the time, but it's Dharma language, so we're unable to understand it. For instance, the sense organs of eye, ears, nose, tongue, and body are continually changing, but I've never seen them ask permission from us even once. Like when we have a headache or a stomach ache, the body never asks permission first, it just goes right ahead, following its natural course. This shows that the body doesn't allow anyone to be its owner, 
it doesn't have an owner. The Buddha described it as an object void of substance. <clears throat> Just as every object is void of substance. We don't understand the Dharma, so we don't understand these Sankaras. We take them to be ourselves. <clears throat> we don't understand these formations, these tendencies, these ways of reacting. We take them to be ourselves as belonging to us or belonging to others. This gives rise to clinging. When clinging arises, becoming follows. Once becoming arises, then there is birth. Once there is birth, then old age, sickness, and death. Here he's getting into the uh, chain of causation, the 12 nidanas, um, <clears throat> which uh, gets pretty dry and, and uh, complicated. But he has a way of simplifying it. Uh, I guess the word for it in uh, Pali anyway is patika samupada. says, we say ignorance gives rise to volitional activities, they give rise to consciousness, and so on. All these things are simply events in mind. When we come in contact with something we don't like, if we don't have mindfulness, ignorance is there. Suffering arises straight away. But the mind passes through these changes so rapidly that we can't keep up with them. It's the same as when you fall from a tree. Before you know it, thud, you've hit the ground. Actually, you've passed many branches and twigs on the way, but you couldn't count them. You couldn't remember them as you passed. You just fell and then thud. The chain of causation is the same as this. If we divide it up as in the scriptures, we say ignorance gives rise to volitional activities and on and on and on and on. <clears throat> Don't have time to go through all 12 until we get to death and all forms of sorrow. But in truth, when you come in contact with something you don't like, there's immediate suffering. That feeling of suffering is actually the result of the whole chain of the <clears throat> patika samupada. This is why the Buddha exhorted his disciples to investigate and to know fully their own minds. I could say, add one thing here. You can't know your own mind fully if you're caught up in good and bad, if every time a mind state arises, you're having a negative reaction to it, if your only intention is to escape from it, to make it go away, there needs to be an openness. This is what, <clears throat> this is what we're trying to get at here. To investigate fully. I think somewhere Anthony DeMello says, it's, it's like having the mind of a scientist not studying something in order to create an effect. He's just interested in it. He's just trying to see. <clears throat> and we can take that same approach with our own life. Our life is an experiment and we're in charge of it. Just to have that attitude of curiosity can change everything. Instead of the good, bad, good, bad. <clears throat> the truth is that we can't force these things to follow our desires, he says here. They follow the way of nature. Here's a simple comparison. Suppose you go and sit in the middle of a freeway with the cars and trucks charging down at you. You can't get angry at the cars shouting, don't drive over here. It's a freeway. 
You can't tell them that, so what can you do? You get off the road. The road is the place where cars run. If you don't want the cars there, you suffer. It's the same with the sankharas, with these mental formations. We say they disturb us, like when we sit in meditation and hear a sound, we think, oh, that sound's bothering me. If we understand that the sound bothers us, then if our feeling is that the sound bothers us, then we suffer accordingly. If we investigate a little deeper, we will see that it's we who go out and disturb the sound. The sound is simply sound. If we understand like this, then there's nothing more to it. We leave it be. We see that the sound is one thing, we are another. One who understands that the sound comes to disturb him is one who doesn't see himself. He really doesn't. Once you see yourself, then you're at ease. The sound is just sound, so why should you go and grab it? You see that it was actually you who went out and disturbed the sound. <clears throat> this is real knowledge of the truth. You see both sides, so you have peace. If you see only one side, there is suffering. Once you see both sides, then you follow the middle way. You move off the continuum, we could say. You disidentify <clears throat> with the struggle between one side and the other. This is the right practice of the mind. This is what we call straightening out our understanding. <clears throat> and I'm going to leave Ajahn Chah there because I want to get to one other piece, which is by Jack Cornfield, an American uh, who studied with Ajahn Chah. <clears throat> well-known writer and teacher. And he begins with a quote from the Majjhima Nikaya. Those are the middle-length discourses of the Buddha and of other uh, teachers. Part of the Tripitaka, the three baskets of the writings, all everything that was written down about uh, Buddhism says, hence the purpose of holy life does not consist in acquiring merit, honor, or fame, nor in gaining morality, concentration, or the eye of knowledge. That unshakable deliverance, the sure heart's release, that indeed is the object of the holy life. That is its essence. That is its goal. <clears throat> you could say those other things, morality, concentration, the eye of knowledge, wisdom, samadhi, Morality, just Sheila, those are the path. The goal is the sure heart's release. <clears throat> and then Jack Cornfield takes it up. Buddhist teaching is neither a path of denial nor of affirmation. It shows us the paradox of the universe within and beyond the opposites. It teaches us to be in the world, but not of the world. This realization is called the middle way. Ajahn Chah talked about the middle way every day. <laughs> In the monastery, we contemplated the middle way. At twilight, a hundred, a hundred monks could be found seated in the open-air meditation pavilion, surrounded by the towering trees and dense green forest, reciting these original verses. <clears throat> there is a middle way between the extremes of indulgence and self-denial, free from sorrow and suffering. This is the way to peace. 
and liberation in this very life. <clears throat> and then Jack Cornfield goes on, if we see happiness purely through indulgence, we are not free. And if we fight against ourselves and the world, we are not free. It is the middle path that brings freedom. This is a universal truth discovered by all those who awaken. And then he quotes the Buddha. It is as if while traveling through a great forest, one should come upon an ancient path, an ancient road traversed by people of former days. Even so have I, monks, seen an ancient path, an ancient road traversed by the rightly enlightened ones of former, former times. <clears throat> and then he goes on, the middle way describes the middle ground between attachment and aversion, between being and non-being, between form and emptiness, between free will and determinism. The more we delve into the middle way, the more deeply we come to rest between the play of opposites. Sometimes Ajahn Chah described it like a koan, where there is neither going forward, nor going backward, nor standing still. To discover the middle way, he went on, try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become still in any surroundings, like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful, rare animals will come to drink at the pool, and you will clearly see the nature of all things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. <clears throat> this is the happiness which is not opposed to suffering. <clears throat> and then Jack Cornfield takes it up. Learning to rest in the middle way requires a trust in life itself. It is like learning to swim. When I, I remember first taking swimming lessons when I was seven years old. I was a skinny, shivering boy, flailing around, trying to stay afloat in a cold pool. But one morning there came a magical moment lying on my back when I was held by the teacher and then released. I realized that the water would hold me, that I could float. I began to trust. Trusting in the middle way, there is an ease and grace, a cellular knowing that we too can float in the ever-changing ocean of life which has always held us. <clears throat> this knowing, just having this even come up fleetingly in sitting can affect a profound change. Once we know there's this dimension, then we can come to our practice with faith, with curiosity, instead of coming to it with an agenda, with grasping and aversion. He says, Buddhist teaching invites us to discover this ease everywhere, in meditation, in the marketplace, wherever we are. In the middle way, we come to rest in the reality of the present where all the opposites exist. T.S. Eliot, that's the poet, calls this the still point of the turning world, neither from nor towards, neither arrest nor movement, neither flesh nor fleshless. The, sh the sage Shantideva 
calls the middle way complete non-referential ease. Complete non-referential ease. <clears throat> Reminds me of what uh, Joshu, Zen master uh, Joshu said when asked, where, where do you put your mind? He said, where there is no design. Things in themselves, not things compared to other things. <clears throat> not things explained in words. The Perfect Wisdom text describes it as realization of suchness beyond attainment of good or bad, ever present with all things, both as the path and the goal. <clears throat> and then he says, what do these mysterious words mean? They're attempts to describe the joyful experience of moving out of time, out of gaining, out of duality. They describe the ability to live in the reality of the present. As one teacher put it, the middle path does not go from here to there, it goes from there to here. <clears throat> we could also say it lets go of there. There is no there. Then let's go of here, neither there nor here, just this. The middle path describes the presence of eternity. In the reality of the present, life is clear, vivid, awake, empty, and yet filled with possibility. When we discover the middle path, we neither remove ourselves from the world nor get lost in it. We can be with all our experience in its complexity with our own exact thoughts and feelings and drama as it is. We learn to embrace tension, paradox, and change. Instead of seeking resolution, waiting for the chord at the end of a song, we let ourselves open and relax in the middle. In the middle, we discover that the world is workable. <clears throat> Ajahn Sumedho, this is another teacher, uh, more recent teacher in the forest tradition, is actually American, I believe, teaches us to open to the way of to the way things are. And he quotes him, Of course we can always imagine more perfect conditions, how it should be ideally, how everyone else should behave, <clears throat> but it's not our task to create an ideal. It's our task to see how it is and to learn from the world as it is. For the awakening of the heart, conditions are always good enough. <clears throat> Throshi Capital used to say, everything is grist for the mill. Even when things suck. Then he tells a little story. He says, Ginger was a 51-year-old social worker who had worked for years in a clinic in California's Central Valley. A committed meditator, 
She took a month off to come to our spring retreat. First, it was hard for her to quiet her mind. Her beloved younger brother had re-entered the psych ward where he had first been hospitalized for a schizophrenic break. She told me she was awash with emotion, overwhelmed by fear, confusion, shakiness, anger, and grief. I counseled her to let it all be, to just sit and walk on the earth and let things settle on their, in their own time. But as she sat, the feelings and stories got stronger. I recited to her Ajahn Chah's teaching of sitting like a clear forest pool. I encouraged her to acknowledge, one by one, all the inner wild animals that come and drink at the pool. She began to name them. Fear of loss of control, fear of death, fear of living fully, grief and clinging to a previous relationship, longing for a partner but wanting to be independent, fear for her brother, anxiety about money, anger at the healthcare system she had to do battle every day, she had to battle every day at her job, gratitude for her co-workers. I invited her to sit in the middle of it all, the paradox, the messiness, the hopes and fears. Take your seat like a queen on the throne, I said, and allow the play of life's, the play of life, the joys and sorrows, the fears and confusions, the birth and death around you. Don't think you have to fix it. Ginger practiced sitting and walking, allowing it all to be. As the intense feelings continued to come and go, she relaxed and gradually she became more still and present. Her meditation felt more spacious. The stronger states and feeling that arose seemed like impersonal waves of energy. <clears throat> she began to disidentify with it. Her body became lighter and joy arose. Two days later, things got worse. She came down with the flu. She felt extremely weak and unsafe, and she became depressed. Because Ginger also had hepatitis C, she worried that her body would never be strong enough to meditate well or live with ease. I reminded her about sitting in the middle of it all, and she came the next day still and happy again. She said, I've returned to the center. I'm not going to let my past karma and these obstacles rob me of my presence. It's wonderful. She laughed and went on. Like the Buddha, I realized, oh, this is just Mara. I just say, I see you, Mara. Mara is the evil one in Buddhist tradition, <clears throat> who traditionally came to the Buddha on his seat of realization to distract him and discourage him. Like the Buddha, I realized, oh, this is just Mara. And I just say, I see you, Mara. Mara can be my grief or my hopes or my body pain or my fear. All of it is just life. And the middle way is so deep, it's in all of them and none of them. It's always here. I've seen Ginger now over several years since she left the retreat. Her outer, outer circumstances have not really improved. Her work, her brother, her health are still all still difficulties she continues to face. But her heart is more at ease. She sits quietly almost every day in the messiness of her life. Ginger tells me her meditation has help her, helped her find the middle path and the inner freedom she hoped for. <clears throat> this is all taken from uh, the book, The Wise Heart, 
Jack Cornfield's book. <clears throat> this is available to all of us. As many times as we forget, it's always there. Just to drop our obsession with trying to change things. Reawaken our curiosity, our innate stillness. The more we do it, the more our trust grows, <clears throat> the easier it is to do uh, in the future. I read somewhere in preparing for this talk something that Jean-Paul Sartre said, which is there are two ways to go to the gas chamber, free and not free. No matter what it is, we can fight it or we can become one with it. Coming one with it doesn't mean we don't suffer, doesn't mean it doesn't suck. But it means we drop our ideas that things should somehow be different than they are. Part of the wisdom of Buddhism is that everything is the result of conditions and causes. It's like somebody playing bridge. <clears throat> I used to play duplicate bridge back in my college days, which was a fairly long time ago. It doesn't matter whether you have a good hand or a bad hand. <clears throat> it's just how well you play that hand. To be able to drop our distress <clears throat> that we're not doing better we're not wiser and just see what's in front of us see what there is to do it's really the key to practice and then just to keep at it so much depends on having that faith and never giving up learning how to work finding out for ourselves. The world is full of teachings, are full of pointers and <clears throat> ways that may be helpful. But in the end, we find out for ourselves. And then we know. Then we trust. <clears throat> All right, our time is up. We'll stop now and recite the four vows.